The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Thank you. Please be seated and please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 43 through 48 today. Uh, anybody go to the Lauren Swift Carlton Holland wedding last night? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, okay. A couple did. The rest of you missed a real treat. Has nothing to do with the bride. It's all about me. I wore a robe. It was a long, beautiful robe with a felt. I almost preached in it today. I thought the people need to see this. I, you know, the wedding is all about the bride. Not so much. I think it's about me. I mean, I was there, and, and all the ladies were going through rehearsal, and I said, okay, at this point, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And I said, you're going to fix her train. I said, but really, what's important is this right here. And they looked at me, because I was all serious about instructions. They looked at me, and they were like, and I was like, yeah, if anything's out of place, you fix it. And they started dying laughing. They're like, this guy is not right, and it's true. So uh, we're working through Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of five discourses that Jesus is teaching in the book of Matthew. Remember what's going on in these discourses. These are times where Jesus is sitting down with his disciples, and he's teaching them what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it look like? What are you going to face? How are you different from those around you? He's called them out of their different lifestyles as fishermen. Uh, He's called a tax collector out of his lifestyle. Now, a tax collector was a traitor. He was getting rich off the backs of his brothers and uh, the Jewish faith. Yeah, he was collecting taxes for the Roman, the oppressive Roman government. And so people from all different walks of life were being called to follow Jesus. And then he sits them down on a mountain to teach them. He sits down with them, and there's crowds who were gathered because they're very intrigued by this, this authoritative teacher. And they're listening in as Jesus teaches his disciples. And we've been talking about how similar that is to what we're doing today. We come and we sit down as we look at the scriptures. We're sitting at the feet of Jesus, and we are being taught by Jesus what is it mean to be a disciple? What does it look like? And D.A. Carson speaks about it in terms of the kingdom. He says, Jesus came and said, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so all that Jesus has been teaching are kingdom principles and kingdom norms. The way it is in the God's kingdom is very different than the kingdom of this world. And so if we are saying that we are Christians, the, the term the Bible uses the most is not Christians. The term the Bible uses the most is disciples, that we are followers of Jesus. We are members of the kingdom of heaven. And we live in a different realm, a different reign and rule than those who are in the world. And Jesus is explaining that to us as we sit at his feet each week. And so he's going to say, you are different. If you follow Christ, if you live by the kingdom norms and kingdom principles, it's going to be different. And he calls that salt and light. He says, those of us who follow Jesus will be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, we've talked about that. Salt is used and rubbed into meat to preserve it from decay. Jesus is saying, as my people go into the world, into the kingdom of this world, you will preserve the moral decay of society. You will make a difference. And he says it as light. Light Darkness is the absence of light. Wherever the light goes, there cannot be darkness. And so where we as God's light go, we shine the holiness of God wherever we go, revealing the path to God, revealing his ways. And it also can be convicting when it reveals sin. And he's going to explain to us in the days ahead how to live when that happens. And so Jesus is teaching us we will be different. Today, he says, this is truly the mark of my disciples. What is the most distinguishing mark 
of Jesus' disciples. What would you say the Bible says? That this is how they're going to know you are a disciple of Jesus. Is it that they wear a really fine holy robe? Is it that they go to church? Jesus says, hey, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, by the way that you go driving by their house every day to go to church. Is it because you use churchy words that nobody understands and they all end with T-I-O-N, justification, sanctification, glorification, and no one knows what in the world you're talking about? Is that what is the distinguishing mark of Jesus followers? Yes? No? Thank you. What is the distinguishing mark? Love. By this will they know you are my disciples by your love. Let me just read a few verses that say this. He says in scriptures that you will be known by your love. First John, or excuse me, John 13.35, by this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love. And then 1 John 4, 7 starts to explain, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. How do you know? If they love, they're born of God. If they know God, you will see it by their love. If anyone does not have love, they do not know God because God is love. You see the inherent logic in this. If God is love and God is in you and God has recreated you and you are born of God, you are a child of God, then you will love the way God loves. If you do not love, then don't take for granted that you are born again of God. And so he says this is the distinguishing Mark, the distinguishing characteristic of true followers of Jesus, is they love. At this point, what are we all doing? Most of us are probably going, I'm good. I love. Some of us who are really hard on ourselves are probably thinking, I knew it. I don't love like I should. So what does he mean, love? What is love? What does the world say love is? What is the kingdom of this world as opposed to the kingdom of God? What does the world say love is? How would you describe if you went to work and asked someone what is love? What would they say? Give me some examples. What would you might hear? Romance, Romance certainly. I am a romantic person. I love. What's another idea of love in the world? Feeling. Feeling? Sentimental feeling towards someone? Maybe an act of kindness. But who does the world say that you have to love and not love? What's the world's standard of love and don't love? The, the world doesn't say love your enemy. The world says love those who love you. Love those who are kind to you. But Jesus says... Love your enemies. That's what we're going to look at today. The distinguishing characteristic of Jesus' disciples is love. But then we need to understand what is God's definition of love? What is this love that is unique about Jesus that makes us stand out in contrast to the culture? Let me just read some verses that kind of really capture the essence of this love. And I think you'll have no problem following the logic of the scriptures. In 1 John 4, 9, he goes on to say, this is love. This is the love of God that was manifested or that was revealed or made 
made known to us and among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Death to him, life to us. This is love revealed. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So he's calling us to the God type of love. A God love that is death to himself, life to the recipient. No one has ever seen God, he says. But if we love one another, it's implied we see God because where God is his love flows. God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. That means that when God sees us loving one another, loving others with the love that he's poured into us, he says, perfect. That's what I'm looking for. Goal achieved. Mission accomplished. For if while we were enemies, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Notice when, notice the timing. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. Not after we cleaned our act up, not after we said, hey, you know what? I love you. Jesus, I love you. He didn't say, okay, now I'm going to die for you. It was while we were sinning, while we hated him, while we mocked him, while we spat upon him, figuratively speaking. He died for us while we were sinning. Verse 10 in Romans 5 continues, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, of his Son, how much more... Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? While we were enemies, he died to give us life. So how much more life will we have now that we are alive in Christ and reconciled to him? Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured. This completes the circle. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so what he is saying is, this is God. God is love. What kind of love? A love that dies to bring life to the beneficiary, despite how much they don't deserve it. He died to bring them life. And then it says that if you say you are in God and God is in you, the Spirit of God pours that love, pours himself into your life and gives you such love. And so if you are of God, if you are a disciple of God, of Jesus Christ, then you will see that kind of love in your life. And that's how they will know you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Do you love like that? So Jesus has us at his feet. All the surrounding people in our mind. He says, this is what it means to be my disciple. You love your enemies. And I'm sure some of them just then turn around and look. Really? I got to love them. So Jesus is contradicting what they said in that day. They said 
this is what God's word says. Jesus says, no, wait a minute. Let me correct that. So what were they saying? They were saying the same thing that our culture says. Look at chapter 5, verse 43 in Matthew. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. So he's saying, this is what your religious teachers, this is what the ones wearing the ornate robes and look very righteous, and they look at the scriptures, and this is what they were saying the scriptures taught. He says, you have heard it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is the very typical nature of heresy. Heresy is a little truth mixed in with error. I mean, everyone would know it's not true if someone came in and said, God said, hate everybody. You're like, that's so stupid. That's not what God said. But if someone says, God said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, you go, that sounds pretty good. Is that what the Old Testament said? Were they teaching the Old Testament scriptures faithfully? Let's look at what the Old Testament says. Leviticus 19, 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And he very clearly says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what did they do? They took part of that, love your neighbor. I can do that if I define neighbor precisely. I'm going to drop the as yourself, because I don't love anybody as much as I love myself. Remember me and the bride? I'm like, look, this is really about me. And then, he's, then they add in, well, that person that I hate, they're not my neighbor. And Jesus didn't say, love your neighbor and the person you hate. Jesus says, love your neighbor. Therefore, it's implied, hate the enemy. Hate the guy that hates you. It's all good. Just love your neighbors. That's what the human nature does with Scripture. That's what the fallen heart does with Scripture. What were they doing? They're trying to justify themselves. They look at Scriptures and they're like, well, wait a minute. I don't love everyone. So they try to narrowly define the scriptures so that they can meet the standard, so that they can declare themselves righteous. We don't want to be accountable to God, and we don't want to need God's to justify us. We don't want to need to repent and humble ourselves and be poor in spirit so that God declares us righteous based on the righteousness of Christ. We want to say, I'm God. I got this. I'm good. That's exactly what they were doing, twisting the scriptures to make sure that they could meet the standard. So what they said was, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. John Stott says that what they were doing was justifying their hatred of anyone of a different race, rank, or religion. We see that in scriptures. Any foreigner, any outsider, anyone of a different ethnicity, anyone of a different race or a different rank or a different religion was an outsider and they wanted to justify their hatred toward them. And Jesus is addressing that very tendency in our own hearts today. That's not what the Old Testament said. The Old Testament said, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when I read this, I read Leviticus 19, 18 saying this is what the Old Testament says. So far, we don't see where it says love the outsider. In fact, if you read on in verse, uh, in verse, nine, uh, verse 34 of Leviticus 19... He's the first time he starts to address how to have an what your attitude should be toward an outsider. 
At first, it just sounded like, okay, I'm good. As long as I'm loving my brother, I'm not taking vengeance against my brother, I'm okay. But then Jesus, or then the God addresses the stranger, the outsider. He says, well, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you too were strangers in the land of Egypt. So he's saying that person who was not Jewish, who was not of their race, was not of their same ranking, and was not of their same religion, who comes in to live among them, he says, you have to love them too. He says, they were strangers, and you once were strangers. And so God does not let them off the hook, but it was conveniently missed. They conveniently forgot that scripture and just remembered the scripture that they thought, well, I can do that. And there was plenty of other examples. In, in, chapter, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 49, the Lord tells them, There shall be one law for the native and the stranger who sojourns among you. There's just one law, love. Love those who are of your same race, rank, and religion, and love those who are of a different race, rank, and religion, as John Stott would say. You don't get to choose who you're going to love, only those who you personally find lovely because they're like you. He says, no. When I chose you, I didn't choose you from the world to say you can hate the outsider. He's saying, I chose you to be models of my love, to love those, and to take my love to them. Again, Exodus 23, 4 through 5 says, If you meet your enemy, this is what the Old Testament says about how to treat your enemies. He's saying if they're of different race, rank, and religion, love them as yourself. If they're insiders, love them as yourself. Well, what about our enemies? Here we go. Exodus 23, 4 through 5. If you meet your enemy's ox, I think that's funny. Hi, ox, how are you? Tracy Graham, nice to meet you. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey, going astray. You see that they're your enemy. They're going astray. You look at the, the brand on the ox or on the donkey and you go, oh, that's Claude Bundricks. <laughs> Hope he finds them. If you find out this is your enemies, it says you shall bring it back to him. Wait a minute. He's my enemy. I'm not going out of my way. I've got plans today. I've got an agenda. I am running out of daylight. I've got to take care of my cattle, and I find my enemy's cattle. That's his responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. And he says, you should take that ox to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you. This is hard. He says, the one who hates you, lying down under its burden. The donkey is collapsed under the burden. I hate that donkey. I never did like that guy anyway. You shall refrain from leaving. Apparently, I was talking about in the early service. I guess they had a different form of cussing back then. Ah, may your donkey die. Rescue it. Don't ignore it. Don't, don't th justify your behavior. Don't ignore the animal because you're thinking, they're my enemy. They hate my guts. I'm not going to help them. These are all verses they conveniently left out. As they said, the word of God says, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Is that what the word of God said? No. So we can't make the same mistake. We can't pick and choose who we're going to love. We can't justify 
anger, resentment, and hatred in our heart towards that person because we have decided they're not worthy. So God calls us to a much different standard. In fact, his standard is perfection. That's what Jesus does. Remember what he's been doing over and over. He's been saying, you've heard it said, love your enemies. Excuse me, love your neighbors but hate your enemies. That's not what the word of God says. What I say is something much different. So in verse 44, Jesus makes his perfect standard clear, saying, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so now this takes on the nature of persecution. There's, there's this idea of because, Jesus is saying, because you are following me and someone persecutes you and they hate you, or really for any other reason, he's saying, I want you not only to love your neighbors as yourself, but I want you to love your enemies and I want you to pray for those who persecute you. That may be the hardest command in Scripture. You don't only, you're not called only to not hate someone who hates you. You're not called only to not react in revenge against someone who is your enemy and persecutes you. You are to pray for them. You are to pray for their good. You are to ask God to bless that person who is, who is cursing you. You are to ask God to bring a life change that they may come to know salvation, that their family may be changed, and that God's blessings would rain on them. That's crazy. I don't want to do that. I want to punch him in the mouth. That's why it's a mark. That's why it's a distinguishing characteristic of True disciples. Why? Because it's not natural. It's supernatural. It takes the work of God to do that. He says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So that you may prove the genuineness of your salvation. So that you may display that Christ is love has been poured in you and that his love flows out through you to others that you will love your enemies as God has loved his enemies. And down in verse 48, Jesus makes the standard crystal clear. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. If you haven't been stomped on already, that should crush you. And on our face and in our notebooks, we say, God says, love my enemies perfectly. And the next prayer should be, oh, God, help me. Oh, God, I need you. I need the Lord to work in my heart. That's what God is saying. This is not natural. It's supernatural. You must call out to the perfect father to help you emulate your father who is in heaven. We must not justify ourselves by 
tightly defining neighbor. Jesus dealt with this. We're looking at what Jesus said compared to what they were doing. They said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. What were they doing? They were saying, yeah, but who's my neighbor? There's like two people that fit in that category. So I can hate everybody else and I'm good. Jesus deals with this in Luke's gospel, chapter 10, verse 29. There was a Jewish legal Jewish lawyer that comes to Jesus and said, hey, what do I need to do to, to, to go to the kingdom of heaven, to be in heaven? And he says, it's not that hard. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he's like, whoa. He's pretty self-righteous because I'm thinking he goes, I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Uh, what about? So he says in Luke 10, 29, but he desired to justify himself. So he said to Jesus, now who is my neighbor? You see what we do with scripture? Oh, wait. Let me make sure I got this. I think I can redefine this. Who's my neighbor? Who exactly do I have to love? And so Jesus tells the parable. We know this parable as the parable of the Good Samaritan. In the parable, Jesus is making the point. Who's your neighbor? I'll tell you who your neighbor is. And he says, let me tell you about a priest of your Jewish faith, your priest, he's saying to them. He is dressed in his robe, and everyone knows him as a righteous man of God, and he walks by, and he sees a man beaten and left for death. And he walks right on by, because the man is a Samaritan. And then a Levi, one of the, one of the, the tribes of the Jewish people, a Levi walks by, and he sees the same man laying there, about to die because he's been beaten to death. What does he do? He walks right on by. And then Jesus says, and then the Samaritan comes by, and he sees the man beaten and half dead. He picks him up in his arms. He takes him to a place where he can be taken care of. He hands him his credit card, and he says, put it all in my account. Whatever he needs, take care of him. I got this. And then Jesus looks at this Jewish self-righteous man and he says, he's the neighbor. In other words, the Samaritan that you as a Jew despise and look down upon because you think he's not of your race and your rank and religion, he says, he is meeting my standard and you're not because he's taking care of the one who is in need, regardless of race, rank, or religion. And so Jesus is saying to us, anyone you come into contact is your neighbor. Anyone. Do you love the way Jesus says? If they need help, we should help them, even if they hate us, even if they're a different race, even if they're of different rank in life, even if they're of a different religion, Jesus says, my disciples will love with the love that I've shown them. In fact, he goes further or he extends it to the farthest, the summit of love, as one commentator put it, is that you must pray for those who persecute you. It will take extraordinary grace in your heart, to pray for someone persecuting you. Bonhoeffer says, this is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy 
We stand by his side and we plead for him to God. Stott explains that this willingness to take that first step of praying for someone who is your enemy, who who has sinned against you, who has done you wrong. It's not even in doubt. They are wrong. They are guilty. Stott explains that going before the Lord and praying for them, taking that first step is actually a crucial step because the Lord uses that to increase your love for them. The Lord uses that to change your heart, to give his attitude to you for them. But you have to take the first step to say in your notebook, Lord, I pray for and write their name. And God will do a supernatural work. It may take a long time, but it starts with you obeying the scriptures as a follower of Christ and saying, I'm going to pray for my enemies. So who's your enemy? Don't say it out loud. Write it. Who is that person you have been justifying? I don't have to love them. I don't have to pray for them. Surely God does not expect that. In verse 45, Jesus gives his reasoning for this, and then he gives us this reasoning is the motivation for us. In verse 45, part 2, he says, For, that's reason, for he, God, makes his son rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. The sun rises and the rain comes, and God blesses the just as well as the unjust, the evil, and the good, God's common grace is a blessing to all. And then he explains, for if you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? What he's saying is, if you only love those who love you, that doesn't show anything about your rebirth. There is no evidence there of your salvation. There is no supernatural love on display. Everyone does that. Everyone loves those who loves them. Everyone is kind to those who are kind to him. He says, even the tax collectors that you despise, even they do that. Even the Gentiles who are of different race, rank, and religion, and they are outsiders of the Jewish faith, even they do that. There is nothing supernatural about that. Loving those who love you is natural. So that doesn't show anything about your relationship with God. That says nothing about your being born again with the Spirit of God or the love of God being poured into your life. The only love that demonstrates that God has worked in your heart is when you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How do we do that? That's why he says you got to be perfect. I'm not perfect, but my father is, and he will perfect me all the days of my life. So God is calling us to this impossible standard in our flesh so that we will cry out to him for help, and he will change us from the inside out. That's what all these verses are about, Romans 5, 5. 5, 6, 
For while you were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. So he applies the same standard to himself. He says, look, everyone died for a nice guy. Everyone loves a, love, a guy who loves them back. Here he says, look, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled, future tense, shall we be saved by his life? What is he saying there? He's saying, look, if God died for you while you hated him and you were his enemy, and now by faith in Christ, he's reconciled to you. How much more will he do for you in this reconciled, loving relationship? He will give you the power to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But you have to take a step of obedient faith. You have to start praying for your enemies right now. If you're not willing to do that, don't think being here today makes you look righteous. Don't think wearing a robe is what it's about. It's not about your religion. It's about doing that spiritual battle in your heart. Who are you justifying hatred toward today? To do any of this, we must be born again. We must have the supernatural work of God performed in our hearts, and it'll be evidence as we start to take steps of obedience. Listen, if you've been hurt deeply, I don't pretend to think this is easy. I hope you're not hearing that. As is always the case with followers of Christ, it's more about are you willing to start obeying before the feelings are there? And pray God will give you the feelings. As the band comes to lead us in closing worship, I want to, I want to encourage you. We have a little gimmick this week for the action step. Our student minister, who is uh, the master of gimmicks for students, has come up with a great idea for us to help us to uh, love our enemies. And so you see it on my wrist. We're going to hand out wristbands in community group. It says, love your enemies. And so this is going to do two things. If you're like me, you're going to feel it on your wrist. It's going to kind of bug you. It's going to re remind you throughout the day. Use that as an opportunity to say, Lord, bless this person. Or maybe your first prayer is, Lord, help me to pray for them. Lord, give me a new attitude towards them. Lord, would you bless them or would you help me love them? And you pray. The other thing it could do, which is a little scarier for most of us, is if, now it's wintertime, so it may be hidden easier, but, but if someone sees it, maybe they'll ask, what's that? What a great opportunity. To say, well, you see, the Lord calls us to love our enemies. And I find that very hard. But when I was the Lord's enemy, he loved me and died for me. And so I'm trying to learn to love my enemies. In your own words, whatever that looks like, ask God, give you an encounter with someone, and let this be a conversation starter. In your community groups this week, 
Kevin Wilsey has packaged them up for your groups. He's given them to your group leaders. So we're giving them out to you in community group. I don't know if there's some extras. If you want one, you're not in community group, you can check with Kevin. Uh, maybe we can find some. But we're asking you to wear it from one group to the next group before a solid week and just see how it goes. Let it remind you to pray and let it prayerfully, hopefully, open some conversations with some people. Father God, we ask for your help this morning. We do not find this natural in our hearts. We want to be just like the Pharisees who said, I love the neighbors that I find lovely, but I'm not going to love certain people. And you call us to a much higher standard, and you say that I will enable you to do supernaturally what you cannot do naturally. Make it true of us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.